Welcome to Mountain Whispers Podcast. I'm Tim Stewart, and this is conversations on the deeper lessons that we learn from the outdoors. Today I chat to James Farr, a mountain guide and outdoor educator based in Nairobi, Kenya. James grew up in Kenya as part of a, a missionary family. He's originally uh, from the US, or his family is. And he's a very thoughtful and well-spoken dude, so this leads to a very juicy conversation. In the first half, we talk about his upbringing in Africa, as well as the geography, aesthetics, and general vibe of the outdoors and mountains in the African continent. The reason I take particular interest in this is that it's clear that a lot of the magic of the outdoors comes from just how beautiful of a setting it is. And I guess when you think about the fact that the history of Homo sapiens or ever whatever, uh, whatever species came before that, we're talking millions of years, 99.9% of it has been in a setting that's one with nature. It's only in the first 0.1% that we've started separating ourselves from it. So it's no wonder that when we are in nature, our our body, mind, and soul are all screaming at us that that's, that's where we belong. And so we, we spend a lot of time on this because it's like the aesthetics and the natural setting is the container itself in which these flow states and, and transformation that we get from the nature actually occur, the, the stage, if you will. So that's the first half. The second half, we talk about the transformation itself and some of James's experiences in, in facilitating it through being an outdoor educator and, and guide. We talk about how uh, the rite of passage ceremony that, that happens across cultures has kind of been lost in the West and that the transition to being an adult is something that is no longer formalized and people often go into the mountains or on these adventures to to get that same experience and other things like how very risky activities like say free soloing or other extreme sports while they can be viewed as selfish and risky they they can also at the same time be viewed as as very deeply spiritual so i really enjoyed where this conversation went i think you're going to enjoy it too please enjoy james far all right i'm talking to james far who's an outdoor educator based in in east africa is it is it nairobi or where are you right now i am in nairobi right now but i have worked all over kenya and tanzania uh-huh cool um and so I, I, I'm really excited for, for where we're going to go in this, in this next hour or so. Um, but I'd love to start on, uh, on how you ended up in, in, in Kenya and East Africa. Yeah, well, it wasn't my choice. <laughs> Sometimes I would have chosen a, a less complicated um, life path. But my parents were um, American evangelical missionaries, uh, part of sort of a wave you know, sort of the the post Billy Graham wave of missionaries that all flooded out of the states. So they landed in Kenya in the '90s, and that's where I was born. And at the time, we were living. They were like proper bush missionaries. You know, the kind of thing you like see in the old movies where we lived way out in this incredible region, very close to the Masai Mara National Reserve, which is like 
one of the you know all-time um, sort of premier game parks in East, in all of Africa. Um, and so we were literally about th a thirty-minute drive from the park gate. So this is just incredible savanna ecosystem, looking down into the Serengeti in Tanzania. Um, we lived there for like most of my kind of preschool years, and then we're in and out of Nairobi basically from that point on. Wow. Mm -hmm. And, and so like the, the funny thing about growing up in a, in a wild experience like that is like, did you even know it was such a wild experience or was that just the, the normal? What was it? What was that like? Did you have much exposure like to the rest of the world? Well, we, we know, I mean, we would bop in and out of the city, but it definitely, no, I mean, I think, I think it, I got at like, sort of your, your pre-lingual mind, if you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. you know, by the time I was in school and by the time I was sort of developing socially, you know, I was already in the city and we were in, you know, among more similar people. But I think a lot of, you know, just early sort of consciousness forming happened in this, yeah, it's just crazy wide open space where I was surrounded by mostly Maasai folks, you know, who spoke a totally different language. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that got buried somewhere, somewhere deep. And I, I, to this day, think that that is part of why I have such powerful experiences in kind of the African bush is just because that was my first environment. Sure. Um, like a heart level thing. Uh -huh. Sure. And, and what was, um, what, what were some of your strongest and, and earliest memories um, in, of the, the outdoor experience there? Yeah, that's a cool question. Um, well, I was just, I was actually just writing. It's, it's something, it's like, a, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's an image that comes up in my writing over and over again, which is um, the sort of the, the, the topography where we were. It's like it's Savannah, you know, kind of the classic African Savannah, as one would imagine from the Lion King or out of Africa, whatever. But then, but parts of it are much more arid. And so you sort of have these rolling hills um, that are rocky and dry and kind of like scrubby and have the occasional little lush thicket of acacias down where the, the creeks are. And, um, but so you, as you like are hiking up those kind of rocky hills, it's very traversable terrain, you know, it's, it's pastoralist land. So, you know, for generations and generations, the people that lived in this terrain just constantly moved around. They just walked through the bush everywhere. You know, very much part of the ecosystem. Um, and yeah, so I just remember these early memories of climbing these hills. So I guess from a very early age, I wanted to, you know, get up high and see, you know, as far as you could see. Um, so we would climb the hill up behind my house and it would have this, it's a kind of a hot, dry wind, this very, very kind of African um experience i just this the 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 big open plains game in the distance the hot wind kind of blowing by you so that that that's like my earliest aesthetic memory of that yeah wow well i love that you use word aesthetic memory because i because I, I can just imagine the imagery it's it's funny i'm in uh i'm in british columbia which is like a very like um it's like a temporal rainforest and so like the imagery is like these very like deep greens um and, and and browns whereas i imagine yours is very different in the savannah right well yeah and there i mean there's a distinct color scheme you see across kenya among sort of you know something that is is kind of interesting 
for people who come from a Western adventure background when they come to Kenya is there is there is an emergent adventure scene here um, that's very cool and still pretty underground, which is part of what makes it cool. Um, but the, the dominant like outdoor industry is the safari industry. Um, and so it has its whole own culture and vibe and aesthetic and look. And the look is all of these like khakis and tans, you know, like people imagine when they think of a safari, it's a real thing. And the reason you wear that is because that's what your environment looks like. Um, so that is definitely, that is definitely the look. Although Kenya, one of the amazing things about Kenya is it has within a, a not enormous country, pretty much every environment you could imagine, you know, so it has that thick rainforest, it has temperate, like thick temperate cedar forest all over in the mountains. Um, you know, we have desert, we have rolling green hills, we have the savanna. So it's, it's a really exciting, uh, it's a really exciting country to be in if you're sort of a, 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 a lover of landscape. Yeah, cool. I, I, um, I read or heard somewhere that something unique about the, the African continent is that it's mountains, like, um, it doesn't have a distinct enough mountain range to, to modify like weather patterns. Did you, did you, can you tell, tell us about like the, the geography or like the mountain systems within Africa? Sure. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure exactly about that, although that sounds, yeah, I mean, that's a really, that's really interesting, because what I, what, what I do know is basically, yeah, there aren't many mountain ranges in, in Africa, um, I guess because of the way the, sort of the plates line up, um, um, the, I think the, the main, the, the big difference to note about Africa is that we, instead of major mountain ranges, the predominant topographical feature is the Rift Valley, which is this sort of enormous fissure um, between these two tectonic plates that runs all the way from Jordan in the Middle East all the way down to Tanzania. Actually, I think it runs all the way down to Malawi. And there's a few different fissures within it. And so, yeah, so that that is sort of the defining feature for a lot of Kenya and East Africa. So you have the kind of the lowlands in the in the middle of the rift that are a lot of the sort of classic pastoralist areas. But then you have these enormous escarpments on either side um, that can, you know, they can run 2,000, 3,000 feet in altitude from top to bottom. Um, so you just creates this incredible, like, uh, you know, these incredible viewpoints um, kind of looking out across, across the, the Central Africa. And it is, you know, surmised that it, it is in kind of the Rift Valley that and he's just the, the, the forested parts of East Africa that, you know, Homo sapiens first kind of came down, or I guess the, the, the ancestors of Homo sapiens first kind of came down from the trees um, and sort of moving out to the savanna. So it's very literally like the cradle of humankind, as far as we know. So there's a lot of history. Wow. It just has a lot of gravity. It's a very, very cool landscape. Yeah. But, 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 but because of that rift too, there's a lot of volcanic activity. So most of the mountains we have are cones you know there's stratovolcanoes like kilimanjaro is the classic example but there's actually dozens potentially hundreds of various kinds of volcanic cones and domes kind of dotting east africa all um both sides of the rift sure but that like all the mountains are kind of formed through around the rift valley is that is that accurate um i don't know a lot about sort of 
central and I mean, it's, it's a big continent, yeah. you know? So I know East Africa and that's, and that, uh, but, but there are no, all of the tallest mountains in Africa are in East Africa. Sure. Um, there are mountain ranges with kind of a, there's a really cool plateau full of mountains up in Ethiopia. Um, there's the mountains of the moon in Morocco. So there are some, some classic ranges and there is a one glaciated range in on the border of Uganda and Congo called the Ruanzori range, um, which is very little known. It's a mm. totally wild uh, landscape um, as of many of these equatorial mountains are, but the Ruanzori's are sort of these unknown mountains tucked away near the jungle in Congo. Wow. Very, very cool. Mm. Yeah. Does, I, I'm curious, is navigation slightly easier um, like in knowing that the, the majority of the mountains are cones or is it still still quite tricky i think like in the in the coast mountains where i'm it's it can get super tricky just because it's there's like peaks and ranges everywhere whereas yeah. with cones is it is there still a lot of like features you have to navigate or, or what does like navigation and route finding look like it definitely is uh generally it's easier to get your bearings for sure because mm -hmm. if you're on a mountain like Kil kilimanjaro or mount kenya um you know there's there's a few predominant features that, you know and there's and then the whole horizon is empty right there's no range to be looking out at um so if you have a basic sense of like how the massif you know lies then you can navigate fairly easily although once you get up onto roots you are actually in you know you're in this kind of a lot of sort of crumbly volcanic gullies and stuff when you're on these mountains and so once you're on the, if you're in the technical climbing itself, it can actually be quite challenging to refine. Yeah. Um, but if you can get up to where you can see them, yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. And when yeah. did you, uh, when did you first actually start taking on uh, the, the spicier adventures and, and how did you end up becoming a, a guide? Yeah. Well, I started climbing in high school. Um, and like I said, it's a very, it's a very underground sport here. Um, and so it felt very cool to kind of slide into it. It was the first, it was the first real athletic activity I'd ever enjoyed or, or found that I was any good at. And so that's, I think why I attached to it so quickly. Um, but you just, because it is not an established sport in Kenya, um, everything's just a little bit more adventurous, you know, uh, most of the climbing is kind of wild bush trad. Um, and even if it's been done before, like if you get a guidebook, you know, we have the Mountain Club of Kenya, you know, people have been climbing technical rock for, you know, in a, in a modern sense for probably 50, 60 years. But even a lot of those routes you'll find in the guidebook where, you know, kind of classic route in Hell's Gate on these big basalt walls, whatever, and you've, you've looked at the guidebook for a long time. And then you later learn that that route was done once and never repeated since 1975, you know, because it was just so hairy. So a lot of the climbing is like that. So even if you go and do something someone else has done, it's very possible that no one's climbed it in 40 years. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, so I think, I mean, to, to your question, it's just, it, it is just implicitly a very uh, exciting place to climb. And so I think you, 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 you get drawn into these kind of wild adventures and it just kind of builds your tolerance for, um, but then it also makes it really fun to come to the U.S. or Canada, you know, where you have a beautiful bolted crag and everything's really convenient. And, you know, there's a gas station on the way. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so Kenya is just, it's, 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 very, it's very adventurous. Yeah, that's, it's funny. Um, 
like I, I I haven't been climbing long at all. I still don't really do trad. Um, but it's like in specifically in Squamish where I live, it's like it's such a developed area that there's there's bolted routes everywhere. Like there's guidebooks everywhere. There's beta everywhere. You can you can like mitigate so many risks in it because it's so like that it's such a well developed area where it's probably the opposite. You you like you you have to take on all the risks yourself essentially is that yeah yeah totally i mean it's just a, it's a different ball game and of course you know there's plenty of crazy adventure climbing in on in north america as well um that's the cool thing is this, we're never going to run out of wild unclimbed places um which is kind of my thing about because because there's a you know the 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 culture here was inherited from like kind of british alpinism very old school hardcore you know you certainly don't drill anything um and so so it's taken a lot of time and effort and patience to sort of like even open the community here to the idea that we can put up sport climbs that we can drill anchors but um so i really believe in both sides of it i i believe like we should definitely have safe developed routes for the general public like that's what most people want to climb um you know they, they want to push themselves but like they don't you know we just i i don't think people should die rock climbing mm-hmm. um that said you know there are always going to be the the the, the, the few and I, I do think especially now the climbing has blown up in the way that it has it is a small percentage of people who call themselves climbers who want to do scary you know un, like sort of unknown bush climbing if you know what i mean mm-hmm. um and, and that's always going to be there there's always places you can go that you know yeah it's funny to think about about how it's developed in that like in the early days the only people crazy enough to climb were so hardcore that they would also take on all the wild stuff whereas now there's especially with the rise of gyms there, there's a lot of people just doing it as their, their kind of fitness you know yeah. Totally. which I think, yeah. I think is cool and, and you know we have to remember that any any of the cool classic crags we go to now that are so convenient for us somebody put a lot of time and work into that mm-hmm. and that's something that you know you really appreciate here because it's like it's such a small community that if someone puts up a new route it's still like big news you know it like splashes through all the whatsapp threads oh fish and manuel put up this new climb you know, it's a wow, four pitch bolted sport climb. What we have nothing like that here, you know. So it's very it's a very cool environment. Um, because you know the people that are putting up the roots still. Um, you know, you're tracking the progress, you get to go and do the second ascent of it, you know. So it's it's just a very cool, like a uh, close-knit community. Cool. And so like in the, in the like the early days, was there like a uh, uh, who did you learn the ropes from? Was there there a mentor in your life, and 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 what was like, what was some of the earliest like epic adventures that you took took part on in uh, in the climbing space? So my first the first multi pitch I ever did was climbing the southeast ridge of Mount Kenya, which is like a you know Mount Kenya is an epic epic alpine climb, um, you know twenty somewhere anywhere from 18 to 24 pitches, um, very high altitude, you know, very exposed. It's not, there are ways to get up that are not terrifically hard in terms of technical climbing, but um, 
but it's serious, like really serious. And I somehow got a harebrained idea because in Kenya it's like Mount Kenya is the only mountain basically. There are small things all around, but it's like, it is the one obvious mountain. That's why the country's named after it. Um, every, every community in Kenya has some kind of spiritual connection to the mountain because before all of the, the fog and the smog and the, you know, air pollution, you could see it from anywhere within what is now contiguous Kenya. Um, so it's a very, very powerful mountain. And so I went up first, I went on a, just kind of a backpacking, the classic trek up the mountain it takes like three or four or five days um, with some buddies in high school. And it was tr transformative. It's just like, it, it was such a epic, austere environment with a scale I'd never been in before. But you, most people who climb Mount Kenya, like Mount Kilimanjaro, you just, it's just a long hike to the top. There's no technical climbing needed. But on Mount Kenya, most people climb to sort of a, a subsidiary peak um, called Lanana Point that you can get to. There's some Via Ferrata, so it's still it's still a serious hike. But it's um, but then you get to the top and you look over and there's these two spires just kind of shooting up into the air that are the last remnant of what was the volcanic rim of the mountain. And they're called Batian and Nellian, and they're these tremendous technical climbs you have to get to that are the actual sum of the mountain. So I was like 15, I got up to the one that all the tourists go to and I looked over and I said, wait, why aren't we up there? And the guy says, oh, no, 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 you know, this is very dangerous, very difficult. You know, you have to learn how to, I was like, well, I'm gonna do that. <laughs> and so that's what started it. Um, and so I kind of set that goal of, I wanna to get to the top of Mount Kenya, um, the real top uh, with a buddy of mine who I was climbing. There, there was a climbing gym built in Nairobi like around when I was, finishing school and so we started climbing there and made some mentors and climbed outside a little bit but I had never we'd literally never gone more than top roping and then we were like now we're going to take on this epic alpine climb uh and that was our <laughs> so that was our first adventure and we you know we didn't we had to spend the night up at the top of a 17,000 feet um you know it was just like almost 6,000 meters um and you know got up and saw this sunrise with a 360 degree horizon, you know, with Mount Kilimanjaro in the distance. Um, and it was just, it was totally surreal, you know, so you can't have an experience like that and then, and then turn around. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. And, and what was the, the progression from there? Like after, like, after that point, like what have the adventures looked like? Um, They've all kind of, I mean, it's been a little bit of everything, you know, but I, but I think sort of, you know, to the point of your podcast, like lots of adventures, but I very quickly found that I was learning more about myself on these trips than I was in any other part of my life. And so basically what happened was in college, I went on a Knowles course. Um, if you're familiar with that school. Yeah. Outdoor leadership school, right? Outdoor, it's like the, so the biggest American outdoor leadership school. And I did a three month expedition to Patagonia as a student with them, uh, which was also, you know, pretty mind blowing. And I came out of that trip, you know, having worked with these instructors for three months who were really cool people. But I remember one of the things I, I really worked with sort of, uh, in terms of my my personality on that trip was just how 
much I struggled with people who didn't couldn't go as hard as I did or, 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 or you know, weren't as focused as I was or didn't want to, you know, and I was really impatient and I could be, it was a real like, you know, failure of my leadership in that I didn't really know how to work with a team because I kind of, you know, I, I was very selfish with my goal setting and my stuff like that. And I remember coming out of that trip being like, oh my God, I could never be an instructor. That must be such a miserable job. You know, <laughs> you're just like waiting on, you're just waiting on people all the time. You're kind of incompetent students. Um, and uh, I think I just sat on that for a year or two. And then I realized, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> that's actually like a, it's a, it's a really, really cool job to hold that space for people to create, create situations in which people can learn those things about themselves without, you know, dying, without, um, getting themselves in trouble. And so I started teaching, I started teaching climbing at first, and then I went and worked for Outward Bound after college. And I worked for Knowles, uh, not extensively, but a bit here in East Africa. Um, and it's just been like, found it to be incredibly fulfilling. Um, so a lot of adventures, so there've, there've been some adventures that have been sort of personal and I do like to push myself and do that stuff. But a lot of the adventures I most enjoy are these kind of expeditions with students uh, where you get into a lot of kind of hairy situations, but it's, but it's all good fun. Cause you're with this team and, you know. Yeah. That's a, um, yeah. That, uh, I, I'm, I'm glad you shared that because uh, I, that's something I'm, I'm very passionate about it is, is exploring like how adventure can act as a, as a container for transformation and, and how it teaches us about ourselves and, and, and also about the world in, in the same way. And so um how did you come to that language that's really interesting because i use a very i use some very similar words around that it honestly just came to me it was it actually came to me on a um like uh, on a uh on a backpacking trip um and that and and a large part of um like this this podcast itself has been probably just like uh the the latest step in the last like four years of my life trying to make sense of 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 why the mountains are so special and and it's funny I, i'm guessing have you ever heard of jamie wheel is i don't it, think so okay he's from flow genome project but but um he, he articulates it well when he talks about like um he talks about like peak states and and, and optimal psychology and um and so often spending this time uh in the mountains or, or on an adventure like leads to this this certain state where um like the the ideas just flow so much better um and and i think it was uh i i think it was in that experience where where i i came to the language of transformation through adventure um, but it is that kind of transformation that that happens you know yeah i mean that's the whole premise of the the like model of experiential outdoor education you know like the outward bound model was all was all based on creating essentially creating a container i mean like most basically the way i see it is that you are and this isn't even my language but you know with students what you want to do is you want to remove them from their typical social environment um, you want to remove them from their typical physical environment um, so that all of this sort of scripts and narratives and expectations and 
um, habits that would normally be at work there are not don't distract you right and so and then and then, and then you basically present them with very simple uh, challenges of very basic skill building you, you know where it's not it's not at all about <laughs> this, this is this is my opinion there are definitely outdoor educators who, who don't think this but to me it's not at all about you know learning how to camp right or if you go on a, a course it's not about learning how to rock climb it's not about learning how to mountain bike it, those are the skills that you're you're working with to learn other things about yourself to learn about your own process you know and like how how do you learn how do you fail you know how do you do hard things how do you react when you're tired how do you so so it so it's like the wilderness is the container the setting the discipline is the medium and then the outcome is actually what's happening inside of somebody mm. yeah and 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 what comes up when you when you say that is like um what was the line that you you just used oh basically how we're like how we're taking them away from um like the the day-to-day life that like acts as like a uh like a I'd use the, the term pattern disruptor and yeah, that you're, yeah. you're in this new environment. And, and then like, especially when you're in um, like a, 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 like a beautiful outdoor setting, it, it almost creates this like blank slate to, um, to kind of rewire yourself to some degree. Right. right. And that's what uh, experiential educators call it. Pattern interrupt. Really? That's so funny. Yeah. yeah. Um, huh. Um, and so, yeah, do, do you have any stories of, of what that like pattern interrupt uh, has looked like um, for for some of your students or or yourself in in, in the outdoor setting? Mm. Uh, I mean, I think the, the for students, I mean, it looks like all kinds of things. Um, but I think it, like an example is, you know, um, in some of the more structured courses, what one might call like a behavior modification course, right, where kids come, it's kind of like a trope, right, like you, you send your kids in the woods because they've, you know, they've been smoking too much weed or whatever, you know, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to knock them into shape. And so, so I've worked some of those kind of courses where you, you have pretty challenging students or students, you know, challenging behaviors, um, for one reason or another and one of the reasons it's so effective is because you generally what is actually like um perpetuating those behaviors is the patterns they've gotten into with their family right so it's like their family wants to send them on this course because they're acting up at school whatnot but usually those problems like start at home and so a lot of times they come out into the field and suddenly their family's not there. And so an instructor, as an instructor, you work very hard to like be kind of a neutral figure, you know, where like you, 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 you don't, you don't buy into their drama. You don't, you know, you're not going to get sucked into their patterns of behavior. You just kind of let it bounce off of you. And that's typically something students are not used to because their parents are really, really reactive. So you've thrown their pattern off entirely and it gives them this almost like this space, this pause you know, when something happens that you don't expect, that is the opportunity for some learning to happen, you know, and is the opportunity for them to go, whoa, like, that's kind of weird. That's not what I'm used to. And it makes them reflect on why would you do that in the first place? Wow. So, so like, you, you really are like, 
holding a space for their, their transformation like in your training is there like do, do you do you go into like models of counseling um for for those type of like students i mean it's kind of like it's kind of like um <laughs> you like guerrilla counseling might be a good phrase for it it's like you know like you know there are there are people who are trained certified counts counselors something like that but most outdoor educators are kind of like you know they're, they're we're, we're, we're life coaches basically you know just in a very specific format and so you it is a lot of the same skills um and a lot of overlap with counseling with various kinds of therapy um, and so the, I, I, I have been fortunate to like receive some, some more technical training in those things, you know, learning how to sort of do like trauma informed care and, you know, kind of various forms of behavior therapy. And, um, but it's, but it's also much more dynamic than like in a, maybe like a clinical situation because you're, you're learning on the fly, things are happening all the time. You're just trying to find those teaching moments, like these, these moments of, like I said, a pause where something goes not the way people expected. Um, and then that's what you make your lesson out of. And so it's, so it's a really exciting way to teach too, because you do have curriculum and you do have lesson plans and stuff, but a lot of it is you, 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 you have a basic sort of set of tools and then you see something happen and you've got to teach it right then. Cause that's, that's when that student is open to it. Um, or, or this is when this thing happened, it started raining and you all got soaked. And now is the time to talk about, you know, you know, <laughs> planning or, you know, it could be very basic things like that, but, um, it's, but it's a lot of fun because you're just always responding to the, what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And that there's, there's so many variables at play in the, like the, the outdoor experience so that you, you know, there's something that's going to come up that is going to be a teacher of, of some kind. Yeah. That's really cool. Have you, um, like in, on the conversation of, of transformation, like through adventure and the teacher that, that adventure can be, have, have you um, been exposed at all to say like uh, outdoor vision quests or wilderness rite of passage ceremonies? Um, I think there's, I mean, I think there are a lot of different um, sort of structures we've created in our culture to provide those things to people, but but we don't have, we don't share a common language around the fact that that's what they are. Um, I guess you, yeah, I, uh, in that, I mean, that's what, that's what Outward Bound courses are. That's what Knowles courses are. That's what, um, you know, a lot of these kind of big adventures in the mountains, that's what we do, but, but we, but we find it there because our culture doesn't have uh, a good, uh, medium for that anymore you know and i'm and i'm speaking from you know living in africa all my life where there are very very defined you know coming of age ceremonies and and, and rites of passage um that you know very palpably structure how people experience themselves and how they experience becoming an adult and coming into responsibility and the changing of their social roles and things like that and i think in I have found that one of the things that's challenging about being sort of a, uh, someone particularly from like a white Western culture is it's much messier. You know, we kind of have to figure out our own way to do it because no one's telling us, you know, this is the moment that you're an adult. So we have this whole trope of adulting. What a weird thing to have in a culture. Yeah. Yeah, it is funny. And that way, like, as the West has become so much more modern um there's like 
yeah, there's no longer a defined like developmental structure of at which point you're you're an adult. And there's so much, yeah, there's so much that you learn in your twenties of of what like adulting is that you're kind of navigating yourself. But at the same time, like so much of this adulting stuff is like just first world problem bullshit. You know, like it, none of it's actually that important. Uh, well, I, I, I have a sort of funny anecdote of one of the courses I, I taught for Knowles uh, was on Kilimanjaro. And it was a, a locals course where we were actually training a Kilimanjaro rescue rangers in sort of technical climbing skills because the, the, the Kilimanjaro park was trying to sort of build up its rescue team so they could open up some more technical routes and stuff like that. And so we were had a couple weeks on the mountain with these super cool, like really sharp young rangers, um, you know, and we're doing sort of outdoor ed style curriculum and things like this. And, uh, but these are like adult men, you know, and, and, and not just that like adult African men, right. Who like most of them grew up on a Shamba, like a farm, you know, and like, it's just, a you know, there people are just much more connected. Even if you are, even most urban Africans, most of them still have, a, a, a significant amount of their family living, you know, in kind of rural subsistence farming communities. Um, so people are just much closer to that. Um, and so uh, this guy was kind of asking me, like, he's like, what do you do on these other courses? Like with, when you have these American students, and you're like, well, you know, it's kind of a chance for them to like learn how to cook for themselves and learn how to make decisions and learn how to this. And he kind of said, he said, like, he's like why don't they know how to do that before then <laughs> and i was like dude i don't know what to tell you <laughs> really so cool. funny. No, no, the, the reason i uh, i i um i, I brought up right of passage and vision quest is that there's this depth psychologist called called bill plotkin and uh he he is like a wilderness guide and specifically the space that they create is um they they bring adults out into nature and um and run like a a number of like ceremonies so you're like fasting you're like praying to to uh the spirits of the 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 world even if you're like even if you're like agnostic or atheist or whatever the it uses modalities of like fasting exposure to the outdoors um not really having a shelter to like elevate the 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 container of transformation if that makes mm. sense mm. Um, yeah and then there's there's other uh, books that have, have influenced me a lot like um there's a book called bone games by i think it's rob schultes if i'm pronouncing his his last name correctly where he he talks about his experiences around the world where he'll deliberately like take on like a bunch of adventures like while fasting or not bringing sufficient like protection gear to raise the stakes so that it can be more transformative yeah yeah i mean uh, it's just like free soloing if you're a climber um i think is a very i think this is my language for it just because you know probably because of my background i think it's a very spiritual endeavor um because it, what other reason in in that it's it's totally it's totally meritless you know like there's there there's nothing you're going to achieve and there's everything to lose um and so you're you must be doing that to achieve some kind of mode of consciousness you know where 
some some sense that you're connected to something or or I think like you know flow state like you brought up earlier is a big part of solo climbing um and i think too I, you know i think there's all these rites of passage and i think people are inventing you know new sort of modern modes of that but going into the wilderness is you know that's that's a foundational part of the story of like every world religion too you know like that's what you know that's that that's how whoever jesus was that's how he became who he was you know as he would vanish into the desert all these all these mystics and hermits and uh whatnot you know they they vanish into the wilderness for days of time and fast and you know are you know having these crazy experiences that ultimately elevated their consciousness you know so i think it's like it looks really different now but is what we're doing any different than that that's such a good point. It's it's so easy um, to to like talk about say free soloing or or, or anything super spicy as, as being um, be, being like very reckless and selfish. And and for many it is if you're like when you think about who who you're who you're potentially leaving behind. Um, and that's even more selfish when you frame it as like you're doing it for the rush of the summit. But if you reframe it as like as a deeply spiritual experience, um, it, 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 it makes so much more sense. Which is, well, yeah, although I think that, you know, the, the rush of the summit is, a, is, a, is another way to say the same thing. It sounds, it sounds more uh, sort of lowbrow, I guess, or, or sound, you know, I guess it sounds more selfish, but ultimately, I mean, it feels good, you know, in one way or another. Um, and there's always an argument for that. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, going, um, going back to, to, to Jamie Wheel, um, one line he says is the difference between an addict and an alchemist is the, the scoreboard. And it relates to different things, but I, I, I'd almost think of it as um, like, whether it's the rush of a summit versus a spiritual experience is dependent on what you do with it. Like when you come back down, like how you, with how you've changed in your day-to-day whether you're that much more patient that much more kind like it's a spiritual experience versus if if nothing's changed you're doing it just for the rush like a yeah yeah i guess the way i think of that is like basically if it is sort of what you i mean basically if if what you're doing if the risk you're taking opens you up to the world you know and to seeing yourself a little bit more truthfully um you know then it's worth it if it if it if it, if it closes you in which is i think addiction but various kinds of identity building as well which is such a you know massive <laughs> cultural issue in the outdoors is that people become climbers right and then it's and then it becomes about your performance and it becomes about you know i'm a 512 <laughs> like when someone says i'm a 512 climber i'm like what do you mean you know that's a, that is a completely meaningless phrase you know, it's like, it's, just, it's this, it's this identity that they've created. I mean, it's any, it's like, do you mean you could climb any 512 in the entire world? You know, I, like, I'm not, it's just, so I think people feed into themselves in that way. And so I think a lot of that is like, to me, really cheap summit chasing is, is to do it, to do it, just to do it. Um, mm. And to get it done. Or as I say, to, to, to do it, to get it done rather than to do it, just to do it. And I think the aim is to do it, just to do it. Um, mm for the experience itself.
Thank you for listening to Mountain Whispers. If you want to follow more or learn more about James, uh, his work is available on a website called the KaleliProject.com. It's K-I-L-E-L-E projects.com i'll throw that in the show notes uh he has a bunch of essays there a bunch of photography and a film on there uh and a way to 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 reach out to him so don't hesitate uh for that if you enjoyed this podcast please hit the subscribe button apparently that's a a big thing all other podcasters talk about it so i'd appreciate that uh if you want to reach out to me uh, easiest place would be on instagram i'm available tim stewnz i think it is t-i-m-s-t-e-w-n-z um lastly if you have feedback on that outro intro music please give it to me i I, it's not quite there yet i don't know what i'm doing what it needs so please let me know but otherwise until next time thanks for listening